What's up, what's up, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Center of Attention. It's the second sports-only Center of Attention episode that's going to be released on a Monday. And I got to start out the show with this, especially on a day like today. Happy Easter, everybody. Um, whether you celebrate or or not, it's always nice to be wished a happy day. And um, for those people who are of Christian denominations in the church everybody knows how special this day is even though it's uh way different than i think anybody ever expected it to be and i think it's different than it ever has been before since there's not going to be any live mass gatherings um in, in any of the churches a lot of people i've seen i know a lot of my family members have done the um like tv mass and, and watch that way and and worship that way but Regardless of how you are spending today, I hope you're spending it with some of your loved ones, uh, whether they be blood or not. I'm actually going to probably be doing a dinner, and by the time that this comes out, this will all be, already be over. But uh, Kyle and I are probably going to do a dinner, since technically we're we're basically the only two members of our families that are close enough to do a dinner with. Um, but, I mean, I... Easter is always a special day for a lot of people, not just for the religious connotations, but um, for sports fans. And this is a sports show, so this makes sense. Sports fans um, missing out on the Masters this year. And um, there's been a couple years where March Madness has kind of gone past Easter. Um, one of the more memorable memories I do have from an Easter was watching uh, Louisville and I can't remember who they were playing but it was in the NCAA tournament and Kevin Ware um, went up for a rebound or something came down and compound fractured both his fibula and tibia um, if you want you can probably find that on YouTube just by searching Kevin Ware industry I'm going to warn you though definitely um, be wary if you have a upset stomach or don't have a strong constitution when it comes to injuries or gore stuff anything like that uh, don't watch it just know that he completely fractured his shin bones and came through the skin and that was kind of the um, it's kind of the memory everybody was left from that year of the tournament I think Louisville ended up going on into the finals I can't remember if they won or not um, but that was certainly horrific certainly memorable and uh uh, that's one of my biggest sports memories on the Masters. Obviously, there's the Bubba Watson Masters Championships. Not, I guess not the Masters on Easter Sunday. Uh, I, the Kevin Ware injury is kind of my biggest memory from Easter. But then obviously you have Bubba Watson with the Masters. Baseball's normally going around, going on around this time. And uh, still no live sports to break down or anything. But there have been some things coming out from each of the different major leagues um it's just a, a rundown of what we're going to talk about today um gonna start going we're starting to go down the home stretch of the semester uh the nfl released its all decade team for the 2010s um just a little bit of a discussion on how i feel like the virus is affecting the astros after they had that huge cheating scandal earlier this year and then what we thought was going to be the first major live sporting event gathering of since this pandemic has broken out with UFC 249, um, they were told to cancel that. So that actually is not happening anymore, which is disappointing. And then we'll finish out the show. Uh, 
I think you guys liked the Mount Rushmore I had for last sports show last Monday. Um, and we'll finish out with a Mount Rushmore of gutsy performances in sports. So I picked out my top four gutsy performances, whether they be fight through injury, um, sickness, anything like that. Uh, but first, I'd like to thank you guys for tuning in to another episode of Center of Attention, Sports Edition. Um, last Monday's episode was decent for it being the first show that we release on a different day with a different kind of formatting. I think that it did as well as it could have. And then uh, from all all signs have indicated that you guys did enjoy the uh, Kyle episode that happened on Thursday, um, the last little episode that we did where Kyle and I sat down for a portion of it. I rant, got to rant about um, the virus for half an hour. I know everybody's basically done that, but I hadn't gotten that off my chest before. Um, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. That really helps out. Um, and then share it on your social medias. Share it to a friend you might think enjoys it. Um, really... At this point, I love doing this, and I'm going to continue doing this no matter what, but if we can grow this fan base a little bit more, uh, that would just lead to a whole bunch of different opportunities and, and more content that I can create for you guys. But I appreciate the support that you've done so far. Um, remember, you can follow the Center of Attention Twitter at COAPod73. That's where I release all the links for every episode that comes out, whether it's sports or just the regular episodes. Um, and Yeah, and every... Every week, Monday, Thursday, we're going to be releasing episodes of Center of Attention. So this thing isn't going anywhere, and uh, we're trying to expand it a little bit more um, with, as much as we can with the um, virus and the pandemic and the shutdown that has gone on so far. But um, anyways, getting into the episode now, a uh, couple days ago was actually three days ago so i believe thursday was one month until i complete my college degree um, may 9th was originally supposed to be the day of graduation that's changed now it's going to be in september for the commencement but we're still graduating finishing out classes um may 9th and then i'll probably be able to go home around may 9th may 10th um Probably May 9th, after I get everything done on my floor, all the rooms closed down and all of that taken care of and check out with Joel. Um, and then I'm probably just going to end up heading home and figuring out a job to do until commencement happens. I don't really want to try and set up a career before commencement um, happens. I do want to be able to walk across the stage and, and all that. So that's kind of where my head is at. I actually just finished some homework before I started recording this episode. Um, I'm not sure quite, it hasn't quite hit me yet. I know that I'm a senior. I know that I'm older and, and coming down the home stretch and, um, world's going to start getting real here in a second. We had our graduation counseling about loans and how to take care of those, um, last Thursday too. So there's been a lot of stuff that has shown me that I'm almost done with school and being a student and getting out of Gunnison, but I'm also not trying to look that far ahead just because I'm not sure entirely what's going on with everything right now. And um, I feel like with the current state of events, it's probably better to 
not look so far ahead and just be surprised with each day that comes and try and make each day as good as it can be instead of trying to look forward three months down the line expecting one thing and then nothing ever changes. I do have faith that this is going to change if you listen to the episode on Thursday. I think that all in all this is going to be looked at as a total over-exaggeration once we get a vaccine and get this thing kind of taken care of, flatten out the curve, all those different cliches that you've heard politicians and scientists and celebrities who don't understand what's going on um heard all of all of their excuses all the ways that they try and put this in perspective but i feel like just looking at it one day at a time and not expecting anything to change and then being pleasantly surprised when something does change for the better um, obviously you got to be ready if if changes happen that are for the worse so that you can figure those out but i think if you appreciate what's going on now and just have a good positive outlook for everything moving forward we'll be able to get through this and things will get back to normal and probably better than normal at some point but that's how that's everything that's going on here in gunnison uh wind snow every now and then it's a really nice day where it's 60 degrees but last night it snowed and it's uh, pretty windy today i'm sure the blinds will be blown back like they were last week um, at some point during this episode. But like I said, happy Easter to everybody. Hope everybody's being uh, as safe as possible, keeping each other healthy, and keeping everybody else in their in their thoughts as we move through this tough time. Uh, but we'll start off with our first sports segment of the day now. And I wanted to start with the 2010s All-Decade team because this is one of the major... Uh, accolades that you can get playing in the NFL and there's been a few people over the past couple lists um, Gary Zimmerman's the first one that comes to mind that was on multiple all-decade teams and that just shows even more of a commitment and, and shows that everybody acknowledges your strengths and how you've performed so for the offensive side for the 2010 all-decade team quarterbacks Tom Brady Aaron Rodgers Kind of givens, even though I know people were trying to argue that Drew Brees should have been on this list instead of Aaron Rodgers. Um, but then if you look back at the stats, Drew Brees has had only one Super Bowl, no MVPs, and that Super Bowl was in 2009, so technically it doesn't fall. The game was played in 2010, but the season was for 2009. Um, Aaron Rodgers won a Super Bowl in this past decade, and I believe he's a three-time MVP, and it's a fairly foregone consensus that everybody thinks Aaron Rodgers is naturally the greatest talent naturally talented the greatest quarterback that's ever played not accolade wise um, not necessarily success wise because he's only won the one Super Bowl um, but if you're just going to build a quarterback you'd want him to be mobile like Aaron Rodgers as smart as he is and then have the same arm talent because his arm is crazy obviously he's the home run king for a reason or the Hail Mary king for a reason Moving down to the running backs, Frank Gore, Marshawn Lynch, LaShawn McCoy, and Adrian Peterson. Um, Frank Gore and Marshawn Lynch are kind of, I feel like they're just givens for this list, like gimmies. Like the NFL knew that they would have to put them on there because they've played for a long time and have amassed a decent stat yards. I mean, Frank Gore is, I think, top five in yardage, uh, yards from scrimmage for rushing yards. And that's impressive. He's played for a, a long time on a lot of different teams, and he's still playing at a pretty high level. 
given that he is 33, I think, going to be 34 for this upcoming season. So I think that that was the main reason why he got put on this list. I feel like that um, LaShawn McCoy makes sense because he's kind of like the new Barry Sanders, the slipper guy. Adrian Peterson, for a while, was just the best running back in football and was on pace to be probably the best running back of all time, but then lost some seasons to injury, blew his ACL that one year, and um, then got suspended for another season with some domestic stuff. Uh, There's a um, kind of an investigation going around about him, about how he disciplined his kid, and um, Switch Kane was not a good enough was not a good look we'll just put it that way but i don't think that there's a a clear-cut person that you can put into these spots like i don't think that i can't think of somebody off the top of my head who had a better decade between 2000 and 2010 for a running back uh maybe sean alexander but he was kind of a one season wonder and uh I think the NFL, just for running back's sake, was going more for consistency because there was a consistent couple of years where Marshawn Lynch was the best power back in football, um, obviously has one of the best playoff runs in, in NFL history and one of the best runs, I think, in NFL history in general with the Beastquake um, when the Seahawks were 9-7, and seven, won their division, or 7-9, and nine, won their division, and then hosted the Saints in Seattle. And I think he broke 11 tackles on one play. So he does have some good stats, and uh, there's a good amount of memorable plays that he was involved in. So overall, I think that for quarterbacks and running backs, there's arguments that can be made to take people off the list, but I'm not quite sure who you would put in their place. So I'm perfectly fine with those for now. There's an asterisk next to Peterson's name. That, that denotes a unanimous selection. So for the positions we've gone through so far, Tom Brady and Adrian Peterson were the unanimous selections where nobody argued whether or not they should be on this list. So that gives you some sort of an idea of, of how this was made and, and why they deserve to be on here. Moving forward to the wide receivers of the 2010 All-Decade team, Antonio Brown, Larry Fitzgerald, Calvin Johnson, and Julio Jones. Uh Honestly, no arguments from me. I think that those are the four top receivers of the past decade and maybe even a little bit more. Um, The only one that I don't think that could still be a top receiver in the league, and that's just because he's been doing it for so long, is Larry Fitzgerald. Um, He has more tackles than he does drop passes in his career, which is insane. And he's obviously been a leader for a long time with the Cardinals. And that organization has been up and down in his time there, but he's definitely been a positive impact on them. Um, So I think Larry deserves to be on here. Antonio Brown, barring recency bias, if you just look at his stats and the way that he played, um, basically up until he got his contract extension and then even when he was playing on his new contract, he was still a very talented, top talent at receiver, putting up big numbers, making crazy catches, uh, nicknamed Antonio Totap because of the way he can make catches on the sidelines and um, secure his place on that list. Calvin Johnson, one of the all-time athletic freaks I think that's ever been in the NFL. Uh, 6'5", 240, I think 240 pounds, somewhere between 220 and 240, and could run and jump, 
jump out of the gym is a common expression, but he could legitimately probably jump out of the gym. Um, I would say it's similar to his, he was similar to a Zion Williamson, a little bit lighter, but can jump just as high and was a lot longer making his catch radius insane. He, I think is going Calvin Johnson with the early retirement and all that kind of stuff. He is another addition to the superstars that the Lions had that never did anything significant because they were on the Lions, and and that's just been a bad place to be in for the last few years. They had that playoff run, and Stafford's been great. But um, I think like Barry Sanders, when he walked away early, Calvin Johnson walked away early because the amount of punishment he was putting his body through and the amount of success that the team was having as a whole just wasn't worth it. So he decided to get out early, and he did leave an, an passing, an, he did leave a lasting legacy and an impact on the game. Being voted to the All-Decade team was a multiple-time All-Pro, and probably, if you want to talk about Aaron Rodgers being the most naturally talented quarterback that's ever played in the NFL, Calvin Johnson makes a pretty good case for being the most athletically gifted wide receiver that's ever played in the NFL. And then Julio Jones has been a standout ever since he left Alabama. Uh, No arguments with him being on this list. I think that he is probably the top two receivers, maybe the top receiver in the game at this point. I don't know who you could put up against him. It used to be between him and Antonio Brown, but obviously Antonio Brown is no longer in the NFL at this point. We'll see what happens when he does come back, but he is been consistently since he came into the league. I think he was drafted in 2011. He's been Matt Matt Ryan's safety blanket, led them to the um, Super Bowl the one year, even though it didn't work out the way anybody wanted it to. But he has definitely set himself apart from the receivers, uh, the entire history of the league, and then also just the contemporary history. No wonder he. it's a basically a foregone conclusion that he was going to be put on this list. Darren Sproles. And Darren Sproles actually made the list, I believe, in two places. He did. He made it on offense as a flex, and then he also made it on special teams as a punt returner, Um, basically for the same reasons. Darren Sproles, if you aren't familiar with Darren Sproles, I'm looking up his measurables right now. He's 5'6". 190 so very he's even under average for just the normal population of men and then looking at his career stats he came into the league in 2005 was on the chargers and in his first year had 50 yards um 50 yards rushing next year had 164 year after that had 330, 343, 267. But where he kind of made up for everything that he wasn't producing in the running game, he made up for that in the receiving game. His first season had uh, ten, three receptions for 10 yards. Next season, 10 for 31. Following season, 29 for 30, 342. And then in 2009, he had 45 receptions for f- almost basically 500 yards, 497. Averaged 11 yards a catch and had four touchdowns in the air. So he's that's the reason why he made it as the flex position, just because his stats, um, total total touches for Darren Sproles in 
a 15-year career, 14-year career, 2005 to 2019. Um, he had 732 total carries and 553 total receptions for 1,285 touches total. And then he had 3,552 rushing yards to add to 4,840 receiving yards. That gives him 8,392 yards total in his career, and that's just offensive-wise. This doesn't count his punt-returning stats. Um, and then for touchdowns, rushing-wise, he had 23 in his career and 32 receiving in his career. So overall, it's very good stats for a guy who is very physically outmatched and a guy that would have to fight for different ways to get on the field. Um, I think he's a perfect pick for the slot or the flex position. Maybe you can put a Danny Woodhead, but um, around the same. He's a little bit. Danny Woodhead's a little bit taller and um, didn't play for quite as long. So I agree with the Sproles being the flex. I possibly see giving it to maybe a Danny, not a Danny Amendola, a Julian Edelman. Um, or a Wes Welker because the flex kind of encompasses the slot receiver spot. Um, but Darren Sproles is, is a worthy uh, name to end up on this 2010s all-decade team. The tight ends, Rob Gronkowski and Travis Kelsey. Uh, Gronkowski, I think, is probably the greatest tight end ever to play. Um, the His physical stature, his catch radius, the... His athletic ability to be able to catch the ball and run afterwards was incredible. And then obviously with, I mean, he's a four-time first-team All-Pro, all five-time Pro Bowler, um, played on the Patriots for eight seasons, and is in his career played in 115 games with 521 receptions, 7,861 yards makes it a 15.1 yards per reception and then 79 touchdowns in a eight season career. So he averaged almost 10 touchdowns a season, which is more production than I think you could possibly ever predict for a tight end to have, especially in the league that it is today where tight ends are almost kind of like a, a lost position. Um, where you don't necessarily see them, and if you do, you don't really see them in line. Think of a Jared Cook, if you're familiar with um, the Raiders from two seasons ago and the Saints from last year. Jared Cook was a, a very productive member of the the Saints and um, the Raiders, but he wasn't putting up production in the same way that Gronkowski was. Gronkowski was also one of those rare tight ends, especially in the past 25 years, who can actually block very well and that's another um, I think that's another reason why you see Rob Gronkowski showing up on this all-decade team uh, like I said four-time first-team all-pro five-time pro bowler 2014 AP comeback player of the year 2014 uh, PFWA comeback player of the year and then also a three-time Super Bowl champion so he, he was tough he was durable um did a lot of things very well for the New England Patriots. I think that if he's not there, and um, I believe that this is also proven, if he's not on the team, I don't think Brady gets six Super Bowls. 
I don't think Brady gets past three Super Bowls if Gronkowski isn't on the team with him. So I think that with his importance to the the team and, and everything like that, I do think that he is a worthy member of the All-Decade team. Travis Kelsey, the way everything's moving, Kelsey is probably going to break all of Gronkowski's receiving and yardage and touchdown records. Um, Kelsey's the most dynamic tight end pass catcher in the league at this point. There's nobody that really catches that that holds a candle to him. Uh, Gronkowski is 6'6", 270. Travis Kelsey is 6'5", 260. Uh, played quarterback in high school, ironically enough. But now, ever since he made the transition to uh, tight end at the University of Cincinnati and then being drafted by the Chiefs, um, he was on practice squad in 2013 and then 2014, kind of burst onto the scene, had 862 yards and five touchdowns that season. And then he's just steadily been improving. And in 2018, when Patrick Mahomes burst onto the scene and had his huge MVP season, MVP season, a big help of that season was Travis Kelsey, 103 receptions, 1,300 yards, and 10 touchdowns. And then last season, um, 97 receptions, 1,229 yards, and five touchdowns. He's also a leader in the locker room. Um, he's kind of the emotional leader of the Chiefs, I would say. I think that um, Mahomes is a little bit quieter of a leader. Kelsey's an in-your-face kind of get-out-there-and-lead-your-guys-the-way-that-you-should type of guy. So I do appreciate about appreciate that about Kelsey. And I also appreciate he's not necessarily as good of a blocker as Gronkowski is, but I do appreciate the fact that he's willing to kind of get his nose dirty and, and get into the more tougher parts of the game. So I... Kelsey is also a great member of this team. And then offensive line-wise for tackles, Jason Peters, Tyron Smith, Joe Staley, Joe Thomas. Guards, Jari Evans, Logan Mankins, Zach Martin, Marshall Yonda. Um, Yonda Yonda and Joe Thomas were both unanimous selections. And then for um, centers, you have Alex Mack and Marquise Pouncey. It's... uh, I think for this decade, offensive line-wise has been fairly average. There's not really anybody that really stands out. Jason Peters and Tyron, Jason Peters, Tyron Smith, and Joe Thomas are all unanimous Hall of Famers. Could possibly be first ballot Hall of Famers in my mind. Um, and I think Joe Staley will get in at some point. The tackle for the 49ers, um, he's just still playing and, and has a little bit more of his legacy to write. Zach Martin is the only guard that I really agree with. Um, Zach Martin and Marshall Yonda. Those two are the only guards that I agree with. I'm not sure. Like Jari Evans and Logan Mankins might have just made it by default because they needed four guards to put on this list. But I think Zach Martin and Marshall Yonda, also another two future Hall of Famers and two guys that have anchored the offensive lines that they've been playing on. Um, Yonda with Baltimore and Martin with Dallas. Um, Alex Mack and Marquise Pouncey. I'm not actually familiar with who exactly Alex Mack is. Uh, he plays. He's the center currently for the Falcons, and I believe he was drafted by the Browns at first. 
played at the University of California and was drafted by the Browns 21st overall in 2009. So he's been playing for a long time, and I think that is something you have to consider with the offensive line, especially with the all-decade team. Um, when you start in the previous decade and then can continue to play um, and play at a high level, and I think he's been consistent. Obviously, he's been to the playoffs and the Super Bowl with the Falcons. He just He's not one of those guys that kind of stands out on tape. And um, like a Jason Kelsey, Jason Kelsey right now to me is the number one center in the league. Um, and I don't think that's debatable. I think he's the top center right now. And I think that he's going to be, he's got a spot um, depending on how the rest of this decade goes and how the rest of his career goes. He's got a spot on next, the next decades, all decade team. Marquise Pouncey, uh, I'm mixed emotions about him because of his history personally. Um, we talked about it last week with on the sports episode with John Jones and how um, you kind of you should separate the athlete. There's a school of thought out there where you should separate the athlete from the person, um, and I don't believe in that. I think that that's a bad precedent to set, and I think it's a bad role model to tell kids that if you're going to be a great athlete, you can be a douchebag off the field. Marquise Pouncey. Is a part of that Florida team uh, that I hope gets a 30 for 30 made about them at some point because there's so many different storylines with Tim Tebow, Aaron Hernandez, Riley Cooper, Janoris Jenkins, and the Pouncey Twins all on the same team. Uh, obviously, everybody knows about the Aaron Hernandez stuff. Definitely go watch his documentary if you haven't so far. It sheds a lot of light and brings up some good points as to how we probably could have seen what happened with him coming. But he was on the same team with Aaron Hernandez and Riley Cooper. Aaron Hernandez, gang affiliation. The Pouncey Twins have gang affiliation. Riley Cooper is a known racist and went on about a 30-minute um, racist rant in a locker room before. So, um, that's kind of where his... It's just off the field, he's not a good role model. If you watched the um, Brown-Steelers game this year where Mason Rudolph got the helmet swung at his head, Pouncey was the one curb stomping and, and trying to... Uh, I feel like if guys were hiding stuff in their socks, if you were going to pick somebody out before the game to kind of make sure that he doesn't have a weapon on him, Marquise Pouncey and then his brother Mike... Also, another offensive lineman in the league. Those are the two that you should probably check first, and then you should probably check them before each quarter goes on because they, they're a product of their environment. They grew up in a bad neighborhood, but I don't think that excuses them from uh, probably their probable gang affiliations and the fact that they're just not good people and not good role models for anybody. But he is a very talented center. I'll give him that. He plays the game at a high level and has for uh, a long time. I think he's been in the league for over I think it's going to probably be his 13th year in the league uh, this season coming up so that's the offense real quickly once again quarterbacks Tom Brady Aaron Rodgers running backs Frank Gore Marshawn Lynch LaShawn McCoy Adrian Peterson wide receivers Antonio Brown Larry Fitzgerald Calvin Johnson Julio Jones Flex Darren Sproles tight ends Rob Gronkowski Travis Kelsey offensive tackle Offensive tackles, Jason Peters, Tyron Smith, Joe Staley, Joe Thomas. Offensive guards, Jari Evans, Logan Makins, Zach Martin, Marshall Yanda. And for centers, Alex Mack, 
and Marquise Pouncey. Moving over to defense, D-line, and I'll count D-line as DNs and D-tackles. So Calais Campbell, Cameron Jordan, Julius Peppers, J.J. Watt, Geno Atkins, Fletcher Cox, Aaron Donald, and Indomitian Sue. Um, that is a very, very solid defensive line pick. Calais Campbell, um, local Denver kid, went to Denver South High School and then played for the Cardinals forever and now is tearing up the AFC South on the Jaguars was the leading sack. Uh, he led the league in sacks two seasons ago, and then he's been very consistent all-pro type player. Cameron Jordan, leader of the Saints defense, um, especially with now Demario Davis at linebacker behind him. Cameron Jordan kind of holds down the first level of the defense, and then Demario Davis is good at um, cleaning up stuff that sometimes gets through. J.J. Watt was a unanimous selection. I agree with that. Um, even though he's been very injury prone when he's played and played at 100%, even I think probably 70%, he's the best defensive end in football. And that is not really debatable in my mind. I think J.J. Watt is one of the most feared um, defensive linemen that has ever played in this in this league. Geno Atkins, I agree with, and I like that he made it just because he's representing the Bengals. Um I believe he's going to be he he's the only Bengal that was represented on this list. Um So that's sir that satisfies my fandom a little bit. I'm glad Gino made it. Um Fletcher Cox, Aaron Donald and Dominican Sue, all three are top nose tackles um in the NFL right now and have been ever since they got into the league. Fletcher Cox is a man, like a house. If you've ever played offensive line, and you know how difficult it is to block somebody that's that much bigger than you, that's Fletcher Cox. Fletcher Cox is that much bigger, that much stronger, and then he's very athletic too. That doesn't really play into how big he is, but somehow he makes it work. Dominican Sue, he's one of those guys that has a very, very bad temper and has done a lot of dumb things, I think, on the field, um, going back to stomping on people, kicking people in the nuts. Um, but when he's playing disciplined and when he is on the field, he's a definitely, he, he wreaks havoc just as well as anybody else in the league. And he's a strong, strong guy. Uh, one of those Islander bloodlines to where he's going to be one of the strongest guys on the field, no matter what. Um, and then you have a guy like Aaron Donald, who I think I'm going to look up when Aaron Donald was originally drafted. because I don't think he's been in the league for that much of this decade. Drafted in 2014. So in six seasons, Aaron Donald was able to convince everybody that he should be a unanimous selection for this all-decade team. One of the best pass rushers on the interior of the defensive line, and uh, he's a walking double team, possibly a walking triple team most of the times that most of the snaps that he plays. Linebackers, Chandler Jones, Luke Keekley, Khalil Mack, and Von, Von Miller, Bobby Wagner, and Patrick Willis. Um, I'm pretty sure that they're kind of splitting this up into pass rushing linebackers and then just traditional linebackers. Bobby Wagner and Patrick Willis are the two more traditional linebackers. So is Luke Keekley. And then Chandler Jones, Khalil Mack, and Von Miller are more of the pass rushing linebackers. All, all four of these guys, maybe Chandler Jones 
hasn't had quite the success as the other members of this position group. Patrick Willis went in a deep playoff run with the 49ers. Wagner's a Super Bowl champion and a, a perennial All-Pro for the Seahawks. Miller, obviously perennial All-Pro for the Broncos, Pro Bowler for the Broncos. Um, Khalil Mack was the two seasons ago was the best defensive player I think on the field at all times. Um, Chandler Jones is one of those guys where he's been playing in a, a market that's not been great um, in Arizona. And let's see when he was drafted. Chandler Jones was drafted in 2012. He's a Super Bowl. It, he, um, let's see where he was drafted to originally. Originally drafted to the Patriots in 2012. And he signed a four-year contract with them. So he won the Super Bowl in 2014 with the Patriots. Got his option picked up in 2015. And then went to Arizona in 2016. So he's been out in Arizona for the past four years. Uh, I think he led the league in sacks two or three years ago. So he's been productive, but a lot of his success was early on in the decade. And recency bias would kind of make me think that he shouldn't be on this all-decade team. Luke Keekley was, I think, the smartest pure middle linebacker that I've ever watched play the game. Uh there's tons of videos that you can find. Whenever he's mic'd up, he's calling out the offensive plays and was right probably two or three, two to three times out of four. Um, so he, he obviously earned his spot on this list. And I, I have no real problems with the linebackers except for maybe Chandler Jones. Uh, that would be the only person that I think is kind of a cusp player for the linebackers in my opinion. Cornerbacks. Patrick Peterson, Darrell Revis, Richard Sherman, the three top quarterbacks of this past decade. I think the three top quarterbacks of this past cornerbacks of this past millennium uh, since 2000. I think that these are three of the top guys. Darrell Revis is one of those defensive backs that never was the most athletic, but he had such good technique and he could jam anybody at the line of scrimmage. That's why he played so long at such a high level. Um, Patrick Peterson and Richard Sherman are two of those guys that have been a little bit more outspoken, but they rack up the stats to do so. Richard Sherman, uh, Super Bowl champion, uh, should have won three, I think, with uh, the um, third and one Super Bowl against the Patriots, and then this past Super Bowl with the 49ers. Um, he probably should have won three Super Bowls. And then for safeties, Eric Berry, Earl, Eric Berry, Earl Thomas, Eric Weddle. Weddle was the surprise for me on this one. Earl Thomas is one of the most naturally gifted safeties that's ever played. And then Eric Berry, I don't know how you could not put him on the all-decade team when he has not only beaten his opponents on the NFL field in this past decade, but he's also beaten cancer and came back and is still a great player. So those are the safeties. And then for the extra DBs, Chris Harris Jr., Tyron Matthew. Um, Chris Harris Jr., I think is the best slot cornerback in the NFL. Doesn't necessarily mean that he is the top cornerback in the NFL, 
but he does have his role and he plays his role to perfection whenever he needs to. And then Tyron Matthew, talk about a guy who has taken advantage of every second chance that he's been able to, that he's been given. Uh, got kicked out of LSU for failed drug tests, picked up in the mid rounds of the draft by the Cardinals, played there, um, went over to the Texans, played there, and then this past season won a Super Bowl with the Chiefs. But he's constantly been just a, a – you never watch a game that Tyron Matthew plays in and don't notice him. He's always doing something to get noticed, always makes a huge play. So I, I think that's well-deserved for him. Congratulations to those guys again for the defense. Um, Calais Campbell, Cameron Jordan, Julius Peppers, J.J. Watt, Geno Atkins, Fletcher Cox, Aaron Donald, and Dominican Sue for your defensive line, DNs, D-tackles. Then for linebackers, Chandler Jones, Luke Keekley, Khalil Mack, Von Miller, Bobby Wagner, Patrick Willis. And then cornerbacks, Patrick Peterson, Darrell Rebus, Richard Sherman, safeties, Eric Berry, Earl Thomas, and Eric Weddle. And then the last two DBs, Chris Harris Jr. and Tyron Matthew. So there's your defense for the 2010s All-Decade team. Specialists, uh, punter John, Johnny Hecker for the Rams. One of the top punters has one of the biggest nets in the league and um has been that been the captain special teams captain for the rams for i think the past six or seven years shane leckler um kind of popularized using the different drops for punters that kind of get the ball to bounce different ways and get gets the ball to be influenced it a little bit different kickers steven goskowski and justin tucker tucker was a unanimous selection um Guskowski was a little bit of a surprise when I first saw it, but then thinking back on it, he played kicker. He was a kicker for the Patriots, so he's a couple-time Super Bowl champion um, and then was just very consistent throughout his entire career. Tucker, I think, is the top kicker in the NFL this year, without a question. Punt returners, Tyree Kill, Darren Sproles. Um, Sproles was a, a very dynamic special teams type player, and there's been a lot of guys ever since he was in the league that have benefited from him and the success that he had. So I think that his legacy warranted himself to be a punt returner. Um, I do not have anything nice to say about Tyreek Hill. And since I'm trying to keep this one a little bit more PC, I'm just going to leave it at that. He's a very talented, very fast player. I don't like him. And I don't think that he is worthy of being on an all-decade team. But it, it's the way that it is. And I can't change it. Maybe at some point when I do get to vote for all-decade teams, maybe I will get to influence this. Um, but I don't like Tyreek Hill as a player or as a person, so I'm just going to leave it at that. He is the second punt returner on this all-decade team. And then Devin Hester and Cordell Patterson. Cordell Patterson. Okay. Now I, I looked up a picture of Cordell Patterson and I was able to jog my memory a little bit. Played for a few different teams throughout his career. Started with the Vikings. Played there until 2016. Then went to the Raiders for a season. The Patriots for a season. And then in 2019 played on the Bears. So, you know, his receiving stats weren't that great because of Mitch Trubisky. Um, those are the two kick returners. And I think Devin Hester is going to be a Hall of Fame kick returner with the, the stats and the way that he was able to electrify somebody. And he was one of those guys. He was, I think he was the first guy, really, that I can remember that coaches had nightmares about kicking the ball anywhere near him, uh, both punting and kick, both punt return and kick return. Uh, 
And then the coaches, Bill Belichick, Pete Carroll, I don't think that there's an argument for that. Um, yeah, just thinking about the other coaches during this past decade, those are two of the probably most successful ones. Um, you can't say Sean Payton because he hasn't been to a Super Bowl in this past decade. Um, thinking about it, maybe Andy Reid would be the only argument that I could make for all-decade coach. But Bill Belichick, Pete Carroll, two very successful coaches with very successful teams. And uh, do it differently, too. Belichick is a lot more of the buttoned-up type coach. Carroll likes to have his guys have a lot of fun. It goes all the way back to when he was the coach at USC and get Will Ferrell to come in every now and then and and all that kind of stuff. So overall, I I don't have many disagreements with this all-decade team list. And I think it's going to be interesting now moving forward, seeing who's going to be on multiple. And, and speaking of somebody who's on multiple all-decade team lists, Julius Peppers. Um, if you want to talk about just a, a natural freak. He uh, didn't play football in college, actually. He was a basketball player at the University of North Carolina. And he was drafted to Carolina in 2002, played there until 2009. And in one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight seasons with the Panthers, he was a pro bowler one, two, three, four, five, six times, or five times with the Panthers starting in 2004. 2005, 2006, 2008, and 2009. And then in 2004 and 2006, he was also voted first-team All-Pro. But he started his career back in 2002, made the 2000s All-Decade team, and then just continued to be a monster on the field. He has, over his career, amassed 159.5 sacks. And that is over 17 years. That has him average about 10 sacks a year, which I think any coach, any defensive coordinator would take. Uh, His season high for sacks, and he did it twice, uh, once for Chicago, once for Green Bay, was set at 14. Actually, in Carolina in 2008, his sack, his high sack number was 14 and a half, but then he also had 13 in 2006. So um, I'm trying, I'm interested to see moving forward uh, who the next Julius Peppers will be. Where they're on this list, and then they're on the following list. At this point, I think maybe if I was going to guess. For somebody who has been successful enough to be on this list and will probably have that success carry over to the next, uh, I could see possibly Aaron Donald, Khalil Mack, or Von Miller maybe be able to make that list because I think that they have a few more years to play. Um, But those would be my picks to possibly make two all-decade teams in a row. So that's the NFL. That was the big thing coming out of the NFL that was released this past week. 
Um, and now we're going to move on to something I never, I don't think I ever really discussed it here, but I know, oh, actually we did. Um, back in Christian's episode, he explained the Astros cheating scandal and the fallout of that. Recently, there's been a little bit of discussion going around the sports world as to whether or not this virus is actually giving them an easier time with their fallout from that cheating scandal. So the the gist of the cheating scandal was the Astros had a camera set up at home that was in the dead center of center field, but could zoom in and, and catch the catcher's signs. So they would pick the signs, uh, which isn't new. That's not, not something that's new in baseball. Normally the guy standing on second for the batting team is the guy who tries to pick signs from the catcher. And, and I think, I mean, in all the years that I played baseball, it's you can do that. You do get retaliated against when you do. Um, so I played catcher. And, for instance, if there was somebody who I knew was picking signs on second, the next time he came up to bat, um, the pitcher would automatically throw at him. And I don't – depending on how egregious his sign stealing was – would be the deciding factor on how many times we threw at him but he definitely would catch at least one inside pitch normally a fastball and then doing it the way that the Astros did with the camera and the banging of the trash cans and the fact that they used this to win a world series um, I think personally they got off super easy I think Manfred the commissioner of the MLB is way out of touch with everything didn't suspend any of the major players involved none of them got suspensions and um, the only suspensions that were given out was Bregman and I think that he was their manager for the season and at this point with baseball not having started yet they're they've baseball the MLB has already started counting Bregman's suspension um, and there hasn't even been baseball to be played so if they come back and have a condensed season he's still able to come back for the 2020-21 season uh, and I don't, I don't appreciate that. The 2021 season, the the way that they cheated this game, and the way that they blatantly did it, and the way that they have not apologized for anything that they've done, and still think that they were the best team that year, is absolute the the biggest injustice I think in sports. You can talk about the steroid scandal and all that. At least they were humiliated when they did come forward and, and were found out. These Astros players, Altuve comes up with a new excuse every day about why he didn't want his jersey ripped off uh, after he hit the walk-off homer. And it was because he had a battery pack somewhere in his uniform that they would tap, and he, he would get buzzed so he would know whether or not it was a fastball or an off-speed pitch. You, you have, like... An entire season of the baseball world. This is, I think it's probably the worst scandal since the eight men out White Sox cheating scandal. This is way worse than anything Pete Rose ever did. And he's banned for life. And none of these players got any tough sanctions. And the the people who put it in place didn't even get sanctioned all that well. And it's not like it's just a conspiracy. Oh, they were banging the trash cans so that they knew what pitch was coming. No, this was a legitimate fact. If you look at the splits of the Astros... Uh, on home at home where they had the setup and then on the road it, it's night and day i mean jose altuve hit 400 at home and was barely hitting 200 on the road and he had i think 10 more home runs playing in houston than he did playing anywhere else i mean this was a very egregious act and they're just i i agree with the national sentiment that this they're getting off easy with this 
At this point, if the season would have been able to be taken place, I believe Altuve would probably be on the at least 30-day DL with bruised ribs with the amount of times that he would have been hit in the back by the opposing pitchers. And, and I think that them not being able to take care of that is going to lead to bigger problems further down the road. Or I think the worst part was that people would just forget that they were cheating and forget that the Astros had this whole big thing that happened with them. And I don't think that th- that's right either. They should have to serve some sort of punishment for the fact that they tried to cheat a game and did it to the best of their ability and won a championship even though they were cheating. Moving on now to the what I thought was going to be the best news coming out of the next couple weeks is now turned into probably the saddest news of the last couple weeks. UFC 249, which was scheduled to take place this Saturday, next Saturday technically, April 18th, um, and this was kind of the card that they had just thrown together, trying to deal with the restrictions caused by the um, caused by the coronavirus, and they were supposed to do it at some undisclosed location. Uh, originally, it was planned to be at Barclays. This was going to be Tony Ferguson versus Khabib Nurmagomedov for the lightweight championship. Is the most anticipated fight I think since I said Chuck Tito last last week and I think it's probably even more hyped up than that I think it's close I think the most hyped up fight in UFC history was Aldo McGregor when they finally did get into the octagon and I think this was right there in relations to how excited everybody was how well these two matched up with each other Um, and there was a, a good amount of good fights on this card coming up and then the original reason why anything was changed was the travel ban placed on russia khabib lives in dagestan which is over in that russian area and um they originally were dana white last weekend said that they were still going to push forward and try and have an event um and, and there's a good amount of speculation as to why he did that i i do think dana white is, is a cheap cheap guy um, he's very frugal. I don't think that he takes any anything for granted, um, even though he's made as much money as I think he probably could have ever imagined in the field that they were in. I still think that he is more on the side of greed and more doing, trying to push forward and put something on for himself, and it's not probably not for the best of the, of the league. But I also think that if you look at it from the fact that this could have been the first time we saw some sporting event ever since this pandemic had reached a a global scale we could have started to see maybe hey we don't have to be as i don't know i don't know what you want to call it we don't have to be as scared of this thing we can still have baseball come back and play in certain restrictions we can have football start at, at on time and it would start to give more of a concrete sense to this timeline as to when sports are going to be able to get back on track and when life would start to get back to normal i thought that this would have been a step in the right direction um and they changed a few of the fights ferguson was going to fight gate justin gaethje for the interim lightweight championship that would have been uh, i think there would have been nothing but fireworks in that fight if you watched justin gaethje fight um you know that he's a very i think he's his nickname one of his nicknames is the most violent man in the ufc And if you're the most violent man among a bunch of people who like to cage fight, that's saying something. So that would have been 
a great fight with him and Tony Ferguson. Uh, Rose Namajunas was going to get a second chance to win her title back against Jessica Andrade for the women's straw weight. We would have been able to see Greg Hardy get beat up again by Jorgen DeCastro. If you don't know who Greg Hardy is and why I would have wanted him to get beat up, you don't follow the NFL very closely. He he got kicked out of the NFL. Well, he got kicked out of the NFL after his third strike with domestic violence. He originally got suspended for beating the crap out of his, out of his girlfriend, not once, but twice. And he was convicted of this. And then he still gets... I don't think that it's right for him to get the chance to fight or be a professional athlete after that. Being a professional athlete, like I said last week, is a re- is a privilege, not a right. And when you do something on, along the lines of hit a woman or a kid, kill somebody, something like that, like cause major physical, emotional, or psychological harm to somebody else, you shouldn't have the privilege of being a professional athlete anymore. He should have to work labor. He should be in prison, I think, and, and still be in prison for what he did to his girlfriend. It's amazing that she was she's able to be there. I think that she takes a better beating than anybody else in the UFC. So I think uh, that's, that's my feelings on Greg Hardy and the fact that the UFC keeps putting him out there, putting him on cards, I don't agree with very much. The only reason that I watch his fights would be to see him get his head taken off. Um, but at this point, the UFC is no longer going to have any of those. There's no real timeline, no no events for the UFC, and there's no real timeline as to when um, sporting events could start to come back. And I think that that's a real shame. I would have liked to at least see them try to put this on. They were trying to move it to uh, Tachi, Pla- pa- Tachi Palace Hotel and Casino in Lemoore, California. And it would have been on Indian territory instead of United States territory, Native American territory, excuse me, instead of United States territory. So they wouldn't have to worry about um, any of the shutdowns or sanctions that the country had been put on. Um, But Dana White eventually did fold under the pressure that he had been under. Um, I'm sure that he had more than one government body telling him they should stop, and I'm sure a lot of his advisors inside the organization told him that they should cancel. Uh, It's just frustrating because now UFC 249 has broken my heart, not once but twice, because it broke my heart originally when it was found out that uh, Khabib wouldn't have been able to fight in it, and now thinking that there was a solution to everything that was going on and realizing that there actually isn't and that we're not going to get anything anyways, Um, just kind of breaks your heart a second time. That's going to bring us to our final segment of today's Center of Attention Sports Podcast. Thank you guys for listening for the past hour or so. I hope that it's been somewhat entertaining and um, somewhat, I feel like, I hope that you guys think that I do have some semblance of an idea of what I'm talking about. Uh, We're going to move on to our Mount Rushmore. I did our first Mount Rushmore Last week, um, I did Mount Rushmore sports rivalries, and my top four were Avs, Red Wings, Ravens, Steelers, Army, Navy, and Bama, Auburn, and then I had four honorable mentions. Um, the U.S. USSR back in the 1980 Olympics, uh, Mike Tyson versus Evander Holyfield, the Lakers versus the Celtics, and the Yankees versus the Red Sox. So that was the Mount Rushmore from last, last week's episode. This Mount Rushmore is going to be the Mount Rushmore 
of gutsy performances in sports. And I'm counting this as they either did, uh, the athlete or team either competed, actually it's just athletes, so individual performance, most gutsy individual performance, whether the athlete overcame um, injury, sickness, or insurmountable odds. So um, if the Dodgers would have beaten the, and it's not even an individual example, but the example that I could have is if the Dodgers were able to beat the Astros in the 2017 World Series, despite the Astros being cheaters and blatantly um, stealing signs, that would have been a gutsy performance. Starting off my Mount Rushmore, my favorite gutsy performance, and I think one of the more impressive performances, especially given the injury, would have been Kurt Angle winning his Olympic gold medal in 1996. And um, he did this with a broken neck. And uh, if you're only familiar with Kurt Angle and his professional wrestling, uh, you still are aware that he is a a legitimate Olympic gold medalist. But he uh, started off in the amateur folk-style wrestling and then won an Olympic gold medal in Atlanta in 96. But uh, the, the main thing that he was known for was the fact that he did win his Olympic gold medal with a broken neck. And uh, I don't believe he surrendered a point in his Olympic trials. Six months before he competed in Atlanta, he that was when he actually broke, knew that he had fractured vertebrae in his neck. He had three discs sticking directly into his spinal cord um, and was told by... I'm sure almost all the doctors that he came in contact with, he should sit out the Olympics, try and heal up and and get 100% before he can go again. Um, But I think knowing, being the kind of mentally tough tough athlete that I know wrestling makes him, and then also knowing that the Olympics are not a sure thing every year, um, look back at all the years that the U.S. has boycotted and not sent a team, or look at this current year, where the Olympics are postponed an entire an entire calendar year. And the fact that he knew all of this, took that into account, against doctor's orders, went and competed in the Olympics, and not only competed, won the gold medal, and, and is the greatest wrestler in the world in, in 1996, uh, I think that proves that he should be on this list for gutsy performance. So that's my number one gutsy performance in sports history. Second, Jordan... Michael Jordan playing in the 97 finals, game five against the Utah Jazz. If you're a a sports fan and you're a a big basketball fan, you'll know it by the nickname of the game, the flu game. Uh, Series was tied 2-2 going into game five. And Jordan came down with a a pretty bad case of the flu. Um, in the beginning of the game, it, it seemed like he wasn't able to physically push himself past this sickness as the Jazz got a 16-point lead in the first quarter. Um, and then in the second quarter, Jordan started to get his feet back underneath him, scored 17 in the second quarter alone. Um, and during every stoppage of play on the court, there's been people saying that it, it looked like he was just going to pass out every time that he stopped. He slumped over with his hands on his knees, 
Um, he'd go back to the bench and get ice packs on his head and chugging Gatorade and all that kind of stuff. Um, and they were still able not only to win, Chicago came back and won 90-88, taking a 3-2 lead in that series, which uh, if you're familiar with playoff series history, whoever normally gets to three first has – the odds of winning the series after you get to three three victories over the other team go up astronomically and um he not only won the game three of the series but he scored 38 points had seven rebounds five assists three steals and one block and uh, he had the go-ahead three-pointer with less than a minute in the game that gave the bulls their lead so obviously jordan's one of the most competitive athletes to ever compete in anything and um, this is something on the biggest stage in his sport in a game that could have decided whether or not he, uh, I believe that would have been the three-peat season, the first three-peat season for Michael Jordan. If they wouldn't have won that game, there's a good chance that they don't win that championship. But he was able to overcome and persevere and gut it out um, an MVP performance and, and is one of the reasons why he's still considered among many analysts, especially those who got to watch him play uh, as the greatest basketball player of all time. No matter what LeBron does, no matter what Kobe did, um, it, Michael Jordan's still the number one. Three on my Mount Rushmore of gutsy performances, and I just learned about this. Excuse me, I just learned about this one recently watching an NFL Network uh, production. In 1999, going into the divisional round of the playoffs, Isaac Bruce, who was a receiver for the St. Louis Rams back when they were the greatest show on turf, uh, he's one of the bigger contributors of the greatest show on turf, he pulled his hamstring, knew that he pulled his, ham- pulled his hamstring in warm-ups before I think it was either the uh, divisional or championship round of the playoffs. Didn't tell anybody. Um kind of play he, he played through a pulled hamstring and uh in those playoffs he caught 77 passes actually in, in the season he caught 77 passes for 1100 yards and 12 touchdowns the rams went 13 and 3 were the number one seed in the nfc and then in the playoffs he led the rams to the super bowl victory with 317 yards on 13 catches and two touchdowns, which was the most of anybody else on the team. And that's a team that had Marshall Falk, um, Torrey Holt, and they had plenty of weapons, Kurt Warner, and he was still the the main reason why they were able to come back and win the Super Bowl. And that was all because he decided not to tell the trainer that his hamstring was bothering him, went out there and, and played like a champion and ended up winning a championship. So that's number three on my Mount Rushmore of gutsy performances and my last one number four is one of the more recent um recent ones and it's matthew stafford i believe in 2009 i mean in in 2009 he separated his shoulder twice but he separated his shoulder and got it put back into place and um i think i think it's 2009 or 2010 it was in the game. He's on the sidelines. If you've seen Friday Night Lights, the movie, you're familiar with kind of the atmosphere of what was going on. So he separates his shoulder after getting hit hard against the Bengals. Goes over. It was a third down play. So they punt the ball. He goes over to the sideline, tells the trainer, hey, my shoulder is out of place. Can you please put this back in? 
and the the trainer is contemplating whether or not to let him go back in. They get it, his shoulder popped back in, and the Lions get out there back with a chance to win the game. And Stafford orchestrates a. Actually, I'm not even sure if they actually put his shoulder back into place before he orchestrated the game-winning drive and took the Lions all the way down the field to score. Um, Stafford's one of the overall. If you talk to NFL players now or people who call games, get interacting with the uh, players of today's game. Stafford is considered one of the toughest of all time, and that's between offensive linemen, defensive linemen, linebackers. Uh, the amount of injuries that he's played through and, and the fact that he still plays at a high level. And, I mean, even this past season, he had an injured back. He had fractured um, fractured parts of his back, and he still would – he still played, I think, up until week four of the season. Then the Lions season kind of uh, trailed off. But he uh, he's proven to a lot of different people in a lot of different situations that he is the toughest guy in the NFL, toughest quarterback in the NFL at least, and he still plays at a high level. Um, I could see him being on the all-decade team for – he's one of those guys that – if he would have had more team success, I could see him possibly getting a spot in the all-decade team, especially after the the injury games that he's had to play through. He's just suffering, like Calvin Johnson, like Barry Sanders, from the Detroit organization and not being able to figure out how to put put together a winning season. That's my Mount, Mount Rushmore of gutsy performances. Kurt Angle wins a gold medal with a broken neck in a freestyle wrestling. Michael Jordan playing through the flu in the finals. And scoring almost 40 points. Isaac Bruce playing in the 99 playoffs with a pulled hamstring, leading them to a Super Bowl championship. And then Matt Stafford orchestrating a game-winning drive with a separated shoulder um, and then getting it put back into place. And I think playing either the rest of the season or another couple weeks before he got told he had to get surgery. So that that was my Mount Rushmore. And that's going to be the end of today's sports episode of Center of Attention. Thank you guys so much. Um, If you guys are still listening, thank you guys so much for listening and and giving this and supporting the the show. Uh, Talked about it last week. This is one of my favorite things to do every week, and now I get to do it twice a week. Uh, I know a lot of people enjoy my sports takes and would have, when they were listening to just the regular episodes of the podcast, would have wished that I had more time to just break down sports news and my get my opinions on sports and now that they're i'm giving the giving into that and and giving that side of the audience i hope that the people who are more interested in just the regular podcast do enjoy the sports episodes as well i hope that everything i'm just trying to produce as best the content that i can so thank you guys for listening to the sports episode uh we will be back with a regular episode on thursday just like usual, and then another sports episode will come out the following Sunday. Be sure to follow the show on Twitter, at COAPod73. Follow me on Twitter, at Jimmy Pilato. Uh, my Instagram is at Proud underscore WAP. And then if you listen on Apple Podcasts especially, please rate the podcast five stars, leave a review, um, and then share this podcast to as many people as you can. Try and spread this word to mouth. Let's build up this audience so that we can continue to do this. But for now, thank you for letting me be your center of attention. This has been Center of Attention, Episode 20, Sports Spectacular, and we'll see you guys next week.